I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get shows. And if you like what we're doing, please spread the word. If you'd like a pictorial and caption companion to the podcast, follow at Potabing on Instagram. And as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is my conversation with Robin Green. Robin wrote dozens of episodes in addition to being an executive producer on the show. Robin joined me in studio to talk about her experience working on the show, as well as her open and candid new memoir, The Only Girl. As was her work on the show, Robin's memoir is brilliantly written. As a student and fan of the series, many of the things I encountered while reading it were difficult, ambiguous, open-ended, and messy, much like the show itself. One thing was certain, though. She has an amazing story. We get into her being the first woman on the masthead of Rolling Stone, her work and relationships on The Sopranos, her departure from the show, personal and professional failures, therapy, soldiering on, and the aftermath of the release of her book. Quick production note. The power in my building was cut the day of our interview. I had to scramble with battery backups, cables, and a makeshift environment complete with adequate airflow to make this happen. Fortunately, the weather cooperated and Robin was a trooper, but you will hear Sunset Boulevard traffic, random dogs barking, tree trimmers, and more. No sirens, which is kind of surprising actually, but just a heads up, this episode was in the wild and all the elements that come with it. Robin was kind enough to pass through my studio while in LA on business. So here it is, my therapy session slash conversation with Robin Green. Robin, thank you for being here. I'm so happy to be here. It's a pleasure to meet you. First off, your book is amazing. You read it. The I whole read it. Thing, I, not just the Sopranos part. No, but. I didn't. I, I did bookmark <laughs> the Sopranos part, but I, I wanted to honestly know what is in the DNA of the people of the persons wow. that wrote it. Yeah, that's so interesting. So the, the beginning of your story is as interesting to me as the stuff that we'll eventually get to. Why'd you write it? Well, somebody asked me to write it, mostly, because I had gone to a Rolling Stone reunion, and I reconnected. The the question is why I went to the reunion, because it was in San Francisco, and I lived in New York. And I just, well, I had to come to L.A. for a meeting, so I I just, um, I reconnected with a bunch of people. I just felt like I had abandoned that part of my past, and I wanted to pick it up again. Um, and I re- one of the people I met there was a literary agent, and she said, this is a book because you were the only girl, and we all, you know, how they felt about me and how I felt at the time, and there was just stuff I didn't know and had forced myself not to think about, and I couldn't remember even why I, I had stopped thinking about it. And so I found that when I tried, <laughs> when I tried to just write about Rolling Stone, um, I had to write about everything. It was, you know, I'm older now. I'm 74 years old this year. And it just seemed like the right time. I I had done everything in television that I wanted to do at that point. Although I'm thinking about getting back into it again, if I can. But we did a lot of stuff and we finally got our own show up and running and... Blue Bloods. Blue Bloods. Yeah. It just got renewed again. It's uh, amazing. Tenth year, wow. but we, we don't have anything to do with it anymore except for cashing the checks. You of know? course, well, that's then, not a bad place no, to be. No, there's there's something to be said for that, definitely. Yeah. 
So uh, it was just a, a question of really wanting to figure out, wanting to make peace with those years because I ran away from it. Uh, it. It ended badly for me. Nice segue. Thank you. <laughs> Who was a more formidable figure in your life, Yen Wenner or David Chase? Um, well, I spent a lot more FaceTime with David Chase, and it was a different time in my life. Um, I really admire both men, and, uh, I, uh, you know, Jan gave me my chance, so I would have to say that he was very formidable, and, and I'd already proven myself by the time that David picked me up. Sure. Um, so I, I, ha I owe Jan everything. I, he just called me the other day just because he's writing a book of his own, and— um, he was introducing me as a character in the book, uh, and he said, and a very small character, he said. <laughs> it's just like, that's very typical of him. I, you know, you're a minor. But um, so I, I do talk to him, and, and unlike other people, I have a really good opinion of him. People are, are harsh on, on Jan, and there was a terrible book written about him. Um, I, or, or not terrible, but he, it was an outsider's book. And I, I just and, and I just had a lot more tender feelings towards him or kind feelings towards him. And, you know, David, um, I used to be a, an equal colleague and a friend with David, but then he became my boss again at, uh, at Sopranos, and uh, the relationship shifted with that, um, and it ended, it ended badly with me and David. You know, you mentioned... You mentioned um being a small piece in somebody's book. The fact, in reading your book, I realized you've lived such an amazing life. Long. <laughs> Just the stories, the anecdotes that you told. And I remember there's this scene of you uh, uh, later in life going, when you're watching a show and you start, you burst into tears and that's when you realized you wanted to go back to, or you're watching a film. Yeah, it was a movie. Yeah, when in you the realized daytime. you wanted to go back, to, you found your home. Right. Yeah. Just being mentioned in a book of this nature is amazing. So, like, if, even if you're a small part of somebody's memoir, it's oh. still a pretty big deal, is what I'm trying to say. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so, you became the only female contributing editor on the masthead of Rolling Stone, and it ended. You wrote because of an encounter with Bobby Kennedy Jr. Can you describe this rise and fall? It didn't feel like a fall. <laughs> I mean, in the rise, you know, I just sort of tripped into the whole thing. Yeah. I went to Rolling Stone to apply for a job as a receptionist um, or, or, or a secretary or any other kind of job that women had then. Yeah. And um, the person that gave me the name of the person, an old college friend, had given me the name of someone to contact at Rolling Stone, the publisher of Straight Arrow Books, who was, had just moved out there. She had worked for him in New York. And I said to him, and I can type and I can file and I'm really organized. Um, but he said, your friend said you were a writer. Why wouldn't you want to write for the magazine? And I, it just hadn't occurred to me that I could do that, that people did it. Yeah. Um, and also I should say that Rolling Stone was only 10% uh, – had a, only 10% female readership. So, so the percentage on the masthead really wasn't that far out. You yeah. know, it wasn't that off base because – Men read the magazine, um, and there were only a handful of women who were into it, you know, and I was one of them. But I got my chance. You know, I, I went in to see Jan, and I had been a secretary at Marvel Comics, and he suggested the Marvel article. And I wrote the Marvel article, and it went on the cover. Yeah. So uh, – and that was my experience in television pretty much too. Um, I got a chance through accident 
or through happenstance, not accident, essentially, but um, happenstance, you know, one thing or another. You live long enough, <laughs> something's bound to shake loose, you know. Well, it was very inspiring. Um, you wrote, actually, that copying masters was a method that you taught and later applied to you your break into television. Yeah. Where did that advice come from? And does it still hold water Desperation, today? because um, I wanted to be in John Hawks's writing. I went to Brown. I went to Pembroke. Um, and I was a townie, you know, um, my parents didn't go to college or anything. My grandparents were immigrants and lived upstairs. And so I, I was at Pembroke and, um, you know, to be a writer is something I had always wanted to be um, because a few people, ha from one person, one woman from Providence became a writer for The New Yorker and she was legend to me. And I just uh, read short stories. I read Hemingway, I, uh, Faulkner. I mean, they were my heroes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to get in that workshop. So I had to write a short story. And uh, so I copied one. In other words, I copied the the bones of it. Uh, you know, you have to, you, know, you have to tell a story. It has to be small. You have to have an epiphany. So, you, so I copied a cat in the rain, um, which was a very simple short story. And I used that as a template for me and my boyfriend and just did my own version of Cat in the Rain, of Hemingway's Cat in the Rain. That's right. I guess I did write about that in yeah. the book. And later you say that you were instructed by your then employer on whatever show you were working on to use Updike well, as a scaffolding. Yeah, that was for tone. Okay. Um, in other words, he, they said, you know, I tried my first TV script and uh, – you know, I got a chance to do it by somebody. I, I went back to school after Rolling yeah. Stone. I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, and I met a fellow there who came out here um, and and started eventually creating TV shows, and he remembered my short stories. I was then um, writing second-string restaurant reviews in the L.A. Times, and it reminded him of me and my short stories, which were conventional and would lend themselves to this uh, show that they had, this quality family show, which essentially is The Sopranos. So I wrote my first TV script, and I, I wrote it like as, as what I thought uh, TV was or what I thought I was seeing. Um, in other words, I didn't, I didn't know how, how bald it wasn't or uh, I, how on the nose they didn't want it. Do you know what I mean? They wanted yeah. it to be f with subtext. You can't really that, – that just sounds like a garble of words, and I apologize for it, but um, – they said the tone we want you'll find in these Updike stories. That's the tone we want. That's the subtlety that we want um, in these scenes. And so they took half the script. I took my half of the script. My, you know, they beat out the stories for you. They did really what, what becomes the hard work of television. And you describe it very eloquently in the book how the structure, sort of the dance of the A story, the B story, and the breakdown Oh, there's of a it. definite structure. Yeah. I've just come from lunch with Ann Biederman, who created Ray Donovan. Yeah. And I was telling her, Mitch and I, this last uh, fall, spent the semester teaching TV writing at the University of Iowa. We're helping them institute a program there for yeah. TV writers because real artists are beginning to be drawn to TV because sure. it's a great vehicle for telling story. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the show, to get back to Josh and John that created Year in the Life, you know, Sarah Jessica Parker was on it as a 16-year-old or something and or 17 or 18, but um, Richard Kiley, it was very quality TV Adam Arkin, 
yeah, Adam, the son, and Alan Arkin came even um, and did some work on the show. But um, it was a family show, and, and uh, that was the tone they wanted, was Updike. And and that's what I gave them, damn it. I, I mean, I bought the book, yeah. and I, I was desperate to do it. Um, I, I I just wanted to succeed at this at a chance that they'd given me. And I did it in a weekend at Century City. I was an editor at California Magazine during the week, and the night work was the L.A. Times stuff. So on the weekend, I went in there and uh, wrote my, you know, read Updike and then translated that kind of subtext tone to uh, their show, and it worked. And and I handed it in, and <laughs> and in those days you had to send like a messenger with it, you know. So f- I was in Westwood, um, and sent the, um, the the messenger over, and within two hours, that good news in TV travels really fast. <laughs> and they said, "When can you come?" Yeah. And then John, you know, taunted me with the, you know, or or. Needled me about the money I, I was making now and what I'd be making in TV. You know, he let me know this was a really good thing, but it was a ten week tryout. It wasn't right. like a sure right. thing even then. You no, know? but you broke the you broke through. I the, broke in. Yeah. I had my chance, but I made good on it. I, I failed plenty in my life. Don't get it wrong. I don't know if I necessarily dwelled on that. I I think I was fairly. I was, was honest. Pretty candid. And, yeah, You're no, pretty it, candid. it's pretty yeah. candid. And there were a lot of you know, and I I continued to humiliate and embarrass myself. You mentioned uh, Joan Didion several times, big fan. Um, and by the way, I love that her call via third-party proxy was one of your all-time life highlights. It's a very oh, cool yeah, no. anecdote. I remember where I was standing. That's uh, so <laughs> great. Um, I remember where I was. I read The Year of Magical Thinking while on a drive well, there, down yeah. the California coast. And wow. I'll never forget where I was reading that out loud to my wife. Wow. Uh, so that's the kind of impact. One anecdote in particular that you write about was her I'm segueing to the Sopranos here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's what I was thinking. Like yeah. Sopranos. Yeah. Let's get there. <laughs> One anecdote in particular you write about was her fascination with the Sopranos. Can you retell that encounter and what she said about the show? I believe ape shit is how you described <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, I guess I can't remember what year it was. It had to be early on because John died, but, um, you know, John, her husband, John Dunn, but, um, we knew Rosemary Breslin, who was Jimmy Breslin's daughter, who's married to Tony Dunn, who was John Dunn's n- nephew. And so we were invited, she invited us to a party at Joan Didion's house. I don't think I'd met her at that point, but I had worshipped her for years because she was, you know, a woman writing as a woman um, exquisitely. She was just doing amazing essays and, and everyone had... Um, slouching towards Bethlehem. Every writer had that on their bookshelf. Um, and uh, so we went over to the house. Um, they, lived on, they lived on the East 60s in New York and rang the doorbell and they came to the door and they just, we couldn't even get in the door. They just stopped us there with a million questions, you know, John and, and Joan. And they just... Uh, it was so odd to be honored and and worshipped by them because, you know, we worshipped them so much. Was it surprising that she was so into the yeah. show? It, yeah, yeah. it you know, it's hard to hear that that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, a, a compliment. You know, I always change the subject. It, it uh, I don't know. It exists in another place besides myself or something. It's I'm this person. 
And that's my work. Right. And so, um, you know, basically I probably just wanted to get in the door and get it over with and have something to eat and drink, you know, and relax a little bit. But uh, it's hard to hear. Yeah. You know, because... Is it hard? What does it feel like for someone like you, like this tertiary media about the Sopranos continues to exist and people continue to talk about it. Yeah, it happened. What what does that feel like for you? Are you completely numb to it now? Or is it, is there, is there an awareness that like you, you were a critical part of something so cataclysmic in culture. It's not dissipating. Like it doesn't have a half-life. It's not like a, no, we're still sort of dining out on it. People want to hear about it. Yeah. Mitch said, like, early on after we left, will this have a life after? And we were in some bar in some probably Maine or someplace, and this young person who was a different generation who who should not have and probably wasn't allowed to see it as a child was watching it. And we thought, hmm, you know, this is – and now it's still being watched. We meet people and they are still watching this A lot of young people are watching. A lot of young listeners to this podcast. That's okay, I think. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. My son is five and he's like, Daddy, are you watching Sopranos again? (laughs) And I said, yes. And he's like, Mommy, when can I watch Sopranos? And she's like, not for a long time. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. I haven't watched it. And that was one of my questions. Did you watch the episodes or do you watch? No, I watched the last episode. My husband did not. Okay. Um, He's still never seen it to this day. The, no. The, the last episode. No. Um, and I, I haven't watched any of the episodes since. Um, I, I, I really haven't. It's the past. And Tony I mean, Soprano said, uh, remember when is the lowest form of communication? Well, that was David. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was not Tony Soprano, David. It was, you know, and, and, and is that really true? Is nostalgia really that terrible? You know? Well, we're here. I always preface that before I ask someone to go down memory lane with me. I don't think it's such an awful thing, especially if... No, I don't think so at all. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually sitting here talking to you, I can't wait to actually get down to the nuts and bolts of episodes because... Um, so much of it is, you know, is precious to me and I feel in my body, in my heart, you know. You write about multiple decades of therapy, um, (laughs) and and that your brother is a psychiatrist. Yeah. Did any of that or a lot of that inform Dr. Melfi? Oh, sure. Um, Is that where you drew from? And it was that? Well, I mean, I was in therapy for 11 years, um, so I understand the... I understand the transaction. I admire the utter patience of of therapists. Um, I understand, I think, a little bit of what their function is. Are you a proponent of therapy? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, my brother was under a tiny retainer to prescribe medicine for Tony. To, you know, we would have to go to him as a consultant to ask the dosage of the various, because, you know, he's a psychopharmacologist. Um, so he would tell us what to give her, what what she should give him, rather. Um, so he was part of it. Great line, discontinue the lithium, she tells. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> and David, you know, I don't know if he talks about this, but he was in, he had plenty of therapy, Of course. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's well documented. But again, like what we talked about off mic before, this, who are the people that wrote this show? Because it's such a deep vast well and we constantly explore it and it could all be a big nothing like Livia Soprano says but I really believe that a lot of the easter eggs that you placed there a lot of the things that you said a lot of the dialogues a lot of the ways that you sequenced it was just it's to me 
into the, the listeners, it just feels very intentional. And it's unlike anything that you see today in current television media. There was a delicacy and a time and a sort of cadence to it that is non-existent now. You're um, making me want to go back and watch it again. Um, you know what? If I can accomplish one thing today, which is, first of all, meeting you is one of the highlights of my experience doing this. So thank you. But if I can accomplish you going back and rewatching it as a cohesive whole. Um, it would, I'm interested in what you're saying right now about the, about the, aged the depth of it or something well. and, and to see if it's aged and um, to see what it was uh, because it because I'm not sure I could articulate it as you just have, yeah. what it was. You know, the depth or whatever, or the delicacy or the words that you use. Um, I'd like to see what you mean by that. And I think I had would have to watch it again to, sure. to get that. I remember, look, I mean, I don't want to take the interview no, no, no. in my own direction. but This is your time. Okay, I'm because, you, you know, uh, we were working in David's garage. You know, he, he had a little writing studio out there, and we would go out to Santa Monica and meet with him, uh, and we had various shows that we were, because he didn't, this thing was not being picked up. Um, I think HBO had it. I don't even know if they'd committed to the pilot yet. Um, but during that time, when David had his development deal with uh, Brillstein Gray, Brad Gray and, and Bernie Brillstein, um, we read the various permutations of the pilot of Sopranos and, and some other work that David had done, which was great. But when we Captain were, Ultimo. I yeah, think. it was Ultimo that yeah. I loved. Yeah. I loved. This was David in a cape, you know, yeah. and he's like a drop-dead funny, hilarious person. Um, so much, so much, you know, angry, uh, crazy energy and so, so, so funny. Um, and so we read this pilot. We read the network version and we read the, HBO version. We loved it all. And so, and then we saw the pilot. He filmed it and he had his own screening, which I think he's, you know, he talked about. It, and I think I mentioned it in the book. And, um, and then he called us one night and asked us to, if we, if we'd want to be on it. Um, he hadn't hired any other writers yet, uh, but he wanted us. Uh, we'd worked with him before. Um, and so we said, sure, you know, and he said, you'd have to move to New York. We said, sure, <laughs> you know, just for a little while for the filming. And I guess the point I'm getting to is that I don't want to diminish it. We just did it for fun. I mean, we, we loved it, you see, and we, we, we took a half pay cut to go on it. Talking about The Sopranos. Yeah. yeah. Um, we took a half pay cut because, uh, and our agent thought we'd flipped out, you know, because, because of the number of episodes. Yeah, because of the number of, we had a certain quote per episode, yeah. but there were like half as many episodes, yeah. even less. Well, no half, and so you that that's a pay cut as, yeah. as it turns out. But we really didn't care because it's you can't in television. I don't think work for the money. I just don't think it's possible to do that and succeed. Um, and so we did it for fun. We did it for fun. We did it for. Um, for the value of it, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. because we thought it it was good. We thought it was good. It was David's, but we thought we could do it, and we thought it was good. And we were just tickle pink to be part of it. And um, sitting, you know, we started writing it. All of us. We, we met with him at a, a restaurant for a couple. I, I can't remember how many times. Maybe it was only once, but it seemed like more. Were the main characters already fully formed? Oh yeah, in his mind? yeah. Tony, Pussy, Paulie. Oh, yeah, and the names, you know, okay. big. Uh, when when Junior says in in the pilot that David wrote, um, big puss, uh, pussy, 
um, little pussy, my pussy? No, yeah, yeah. big pussy or your no. It, yeah. it, it, it's just an Uncle Junior. Right. When you think about like the even best. even the name Uncle Junior, yeah. it's it's can I say fucking? Yeah. It's fucking hilarious, you know. Um, Uncle Junior. What does that even? It's like such a contradiction, Uncle right. Junior. You right. know. Right. And um, you know, I guess Meadow Soprano was meant to be a comment on on yuppie names or something. I don't know that. The children weren't what cut me into it. I'm glad. I'm glad they were there. Yeah. But um, you needed that. Yeah, you, you needed. You needed it. that. You needed that to bring in. And again, this is me just pontificating. But no, no, to, <laughs> to bring the audience that would not watch it for various reasons, having the family dynamic kind of makes it okay. Oh yeah. Well, we couldn't um, have done college without Meadow. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so no, you had to have that, and and. Uh, and 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 it was a family show, and that's what made it good. I yeah. swear. And and as years went on, um, it became more of a mob show um, because I think that original conceit wore thin. You know, the troubled uh, gangster. Um, you know, the, the psychopath was a psychopath, or what, whatever the right term is. And um, it, it just got. It seemed in five and six season to get more gangstery in its orientation. New York came into the picture. Yeah. yeah, Much was more all, so. Yeah, than, there was yeah. all that kind of gang war stuff. Um, and we were really, I mean, even Blue Bloods is a family drama. That's how it works for us, yeah. you know. That's how we wanted to do that dinner scene in, in Blue Bloods where everybody sits around the table. At the end. Um, well, it's, it wasn't at the end. It doesn't didn't need to be at the end, and we didn't want it to be at the end. I think the one when the show got taken over, they didn't know what to do with it, so they stuck it at the end to kind of recap things or something. But 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 it was it was a family arguing with each other that interested us from from perfectly legitimate points of view or different points of view. And at the, in those days, I did think that uh, that there were uh, different points of view. Now I'm not so sure. I think that there are some points of view that are just flat dead wrong yeah but um you know sopranos um you know we watched the pilot up in new hampshire um with my my mother was there she was sick and getting treatment at my brother's hospital he's a doctor and um we watched the pilot all together and my brother and his wife didn't understand it was funny my mom did you know she knew it was funny but it was funny wasn't it it was more of a comedy than a drama right was that always the i mean those initial early i don't think it's a comedy but i think it's funny yeah and i think you have to understand that or or you i think it, it just tickled me i mean i have to say and i'm sure other people have said this a million times in that writing room um, for the first year, and the on the stage, and all the actors, and every time we had a table read, we filmed, we wrote them all, and we filmed them all without them being shown. Right. We had no idea how it would be received. We had no idea. David said um, that this was his last shot; that he was out after this. That mm-hmm. um, he put everything in, or, or something like that. But he would always say things like that. I don't know how serious to he to take it, but. We just didn't know if it would succeed. What we knew was we were having the time of our lives. That we did know. All of us at the time knew. The crew would read all the scripts, which is unheard, you know, doesn't yeah. happen Everybody that much. Everybody was involved. Yeah. Everyone was, involved yeah. was like yeah. having a blast doing this creative work. Creative work so, is the key word, yeah. And so the work was what was great. We were all having a blast. 
hard work. It's a long hours, um, mosquitoes and everything else in New Jersey. But, um, <laughs> you know. We were talking about therapy. This is kind of tongue-in-cheek, but also I'm genuinely asking. Have you arrived at any conclusions about why, no matter how much progress we make, we always end up resenting our mothers? Is that something? <laughs> I'm sorry. Um because it, it's a it's a common refrain. It was a common refrain in your book. It's a common refrain in David Chase's interviews about his mother. And obviously the crux, the fulcrum of The Sopranos is this man who can be crippled and leveled by his mother. Well, that was the humorous. The, yeah. yeah. Um, does therapy, I guess, get you closer to solving that? Oh, God. I've never seen it that way. Okay. No, let me think about it for two seconds. You, like, what did you go to therapy for the first time? Is, it, is that something that you can share? Like, what sent you to therapy in the beginning? I was depressed um, and sad and lonely, and uh, I didn't know why. or I, I can't remember. I think I was just sad. Um, and for me, therapy was this woman remothering me for 11 years. I had a mother, finally. I had someone who would, you know, when I got fired from Sopranos, my mother said, not, that asshole fired you? She said, what did you do? You know, so I had a mother who would instantly take the, <laughs> the other side. And so to have someone listening to me on my side, that's what I needed. I needed some sense, something in me understood that I needed remothering. I had a very supportive father. You know, who probably colluded in all the what she caused. And now she's dead, and I'm sad because um, I never did resolve things with her. I never See, I did. Have, I have, I'm asking again selfishly, I have resentment towards my mother who's I living now. I thought it now. might be something like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and so if you don't resolve it while they're alive, uh, it stays with you, right? I mean, it's just sort of a thing, but like how, how does one overcome that? Can you? I think— Are you supposed but to? But I, I, I don't know if— I think I resolved it in the sense that I could function better yeah. because I had so much support from this woman, even yeah. though I paid her for it. Um, I still understood what it felt like to be championed or to be to be supported emotionally. Um, the thing that I feel bad about is that I can't ask my mother certain questions. I can't um, I can't ask her about family things that I didn't I you know hadn't come up as yet. But also that I didn't. And David is guilty of the same thing. I didn't forgive her for. Oh, I, I can't speak to David. I shouldn't hated it when I would get into his head. But um, I didn't give her enough credit for where she was coming from. I wasn't empathetic enough to her. I allowed her to be much too powerful a presence in my life. Um, I'm being very serious here. <laughs> I'm not used to it, but um, well. I mean that that's too bad because she really did have a hard time of it. Yeah. And I'm sorry I wasn't able to come around to understanding that while she was alive and to be a little sweeter to her as she was dying, she pushed people away. Yeah. She was a person who pushed people away and I allowed myself to be pushed away. And I just didn't grow up in time. You know, what are you going to do? But I, but it, it, you know. When you say, what are you going to do? I hear 
Tony Soprano in my head. Yeah. It's a classic. <laughs> Probably. What are you I do? mean, you have to understand that yeah. we would laugh our heads yeah. off in that story room. Do other people talk about that, about the story room? Um, I haven't had anybody oh, okay. except well, for Michael. They're gonna, if you, yeah. When you talk to Terry Winner and, and I, I, you know, it, the laughter for me was wearing down by the time Matt got there. Um, then the laughter became a different kind of laughter that I didn't really participate in, nor did Mitch. Let's get there. You dedicated this, I like, you're segueing, you're reading my mind now. You, <laughs> you dedicated this book to Mitch. Yeah. Um, Mitch, of course, Mitchell Burgess yes. is your husband. Um, now you, he is. You met in Iowa yeah. while at school. Yeah. Um, and you chronicle the ups and downs of your relationship powerfully in the book. Um, when or where did the relationship find solid footing and how did the decision to work together take shape? The relationship is still uh, finding solid footing um, because the ground shifts. Um, the book shifted the ground a little bit uh, um, in, in a, a surprising way for me. Um, he wasn't privy to what you were writing? Did no, he didn't want any part of it. He okay. wanted me to um, just get my ideas out. But in the end result, he objected to a lot of it, or some of it, enough of it so that you know, it, it was difficult to deal with. Um, as for writing together, you know, I was his teacher at Iowa. Um, he was just getting out of the Army. He had been there in the Vietnam years. He's very careful to say he didn't go over to Vietnam, but he, he took that chance and was in that Army in Fort Hood uh, in some secret crypto thing that he he was privy to down there. But... Um, or in Texas, I guess, I don't know where Fort Hood is. But anyway, he came to college, and I had, after Rolling Stone, gone back to the writer's workshop. And so part of my second-year fellowship was to teach writing to poor, unsuspecting college students. And he was a man. I mean, he was tw 24 and a half when he came to school, and I was his teacher at 30. And so the basis of our relationship had to do with writing um, and had to do with teaching him writing, and it had to do with my admiring his writing. So so that's the thing that we kept coming back to when we would split up. And and so when we got to L.A. and split up for various very hard-to-talk-about reasons, um, we got back together again because he wanted to talk to me about writing. He called, and uh, I was having trouble at work, and we started. he started helping me with the trouble that I was having at work. And he just showed that he had a tremendous facility for the work, um, for the for the gold of the work, which is ideas for stories. He really understood always at Iowa and now when he called me and and I needed his help. He understood what a story was. You know, it's 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 just something. It's what we taught at Iowa. We taught story. Um, and that's the thing that you have to learn how to do. Um, and I wasn't really good at coming up with stuff or too shy to recognize the stories that I knew uh, or could or could get to. Yeah. Um, and so he he was a huge help. He, he, he thought of some really good stories for Northern Exposure, one of which won an Emmy and um, – one of which all all, all the, the ideas we had at that point were prize winners and really good, um, and so we started. You know, you you do something 
that works and you tend to do it again, you know, and he was really good at dialogue too. Is it rare? Is the duo that you guys created in the industry, is it common or is it rare? Is it an outlier? I think outlier? there's a couple, there, you know, Andy and Diane were a married couple who wrote together, Andy Schneider and Diane Frolov, um, who we worked with over the years. And uh, they they wrote together. Oh, and my friend Mark and Jen, uh, Levin and Flackett, they write together. Okay, It's a great way to be married Yeah, because um, I wonder who would marry a woman who was working 16 hours a day, you know? And uh, if, if he's working there with her, then, it, you know, you got a chance sense. at having a guy. Um, I mean, David and, and Josh Brand were two showrunners who went home every night for dinner at 7. So that was a very civilized way to, to conduct yourself. But if you were on the set, forget it. You're just there for 16 hours. You never get home. So it just worked on that level. And because, you know, we're attracted to each other, you know, it was hard not to get back into things again. And that, you know, that continues. So you and Mitch moved to L.A. to a place not very far from here. Yeah, it was right down the street yeah. in West Knoll. How did the first TV writing partnership happen? So I was having trouble coming up with stories. Uh, well, it's a complicated, it got more complicated uh, than that. But I was having trouble coming up with stories. So I said that to Mitch. He he thought of a couple of stories, and I took them to Josh, the boss, as my own. And Josh was like, whoa, these are great. He made one, you know, one won an Emmy for Andy and Diane about Maurice having— well, that's a different a different obsession, obsession for you to get into is Northern Exposure. I've already but, started uh, because I'm trying show. to find more of The Sopranos well, DNA. Well, it, it was a wonderful show. Yeah. David wasn't into it at all. And when he came on, he actually—he and Diane and Andy wrecked that show— I mean, the, the last two years were just a nightmare, but um, uh, cr creatively, because Jan, because uh, Rob Morrow quit the lead, the lead, and they replaced Andy and Diane and and uh, David replaced them with this couple that just really was lame. Can you even do a show if the lead? Bales? They I mean, did, and it limped on for two yeah. years, and it won awards because the even post lead, yeah, it won yeah, awards? yeah. Okay. The conceit was good, the writing was good, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you know, the conceit being just this wonderful place to say Alaska, and people who loved it, right? But David never liked the show. Um, he always used to make fun of us because he was on their other show, All Fly Away, a very earnest, right thinking, um, unrealistic drama about the civil rights uh, years in uh, a small. Southern town or something. But, uh, you know, for David, it was just like a huge payday. It was a job. It wasn't it was, a passion. It wasn't a job. It was a payday. And and uh, it upped the ante for him. Do you know what I mean? It was like he had to, he couldn't not do it. How could you refuse that? Right. You know? Real quick, you mentioned a, you wrote restaurant reviews as sort of like a side gig. That's what got the attention of somebody. Yeah. Again, young people listen to this. It's like you literally got someone in the industry to read your restaurant review to remember you. Yeah, and oh, that's young how people, it sort yeah, of young started. people. Here's what I would say to young people: work. <laughs> yeah. You know, it doesn't really just get get just be working. Yeah, don't sit around because. Uh, very little will you happen. You came to L.A. Didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah. You came to L.A. with a degree from Brown and a, a degree from the Writers Workshop. Yes, and you were worked at a temp agency. Temp sec right across the street. And they told These you to get bitches. lunch. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I told Ann was Ann Biederman dropped me off here, and I told her the story about those people wanting me to get pizza in the heat. Yeah, and I said. That's not in the job description. 
And and they called the temp agency, and I was out of there within like 15 minutes, fired. But um, And then the temp agency sent me to banks in Westwood yeah. to punish me. You know? <laughs> then you ended up at a PR firm. I ended up at a PR and firm, it, it, and I started writing again at the PR firm eventually. I started writing press releases, and they were, they were good. Yeah, I'm a writer. You know, I'm just good at it. It's what I'm good at. And so, I mean, I, I guess young people should should find what they're good at and do something connected to it. find a way to just keep doing it. You, you don't know where the break is going to come, and you yeah. can't control it. Mitch, Mitch talks about how much luck is involved. People don't, especially young people, don't want to hear that. Um, but um, because you can't prepare for it. But um, there's a beautiful scene in the book where you describe seeing Mitch. Uh, I don't think he saw you, but you saw him sitting by a window, oh, yeah. reading a book by himself. Were you his break? Is that is that like? Did you get him out of Iowa? Well, his real his relative, his sister, not one sister said, "Thank God you met Robin Green." As if he would have had no life. Because I have no problem saying, thank God I met my wife. Like there's certain things that the other person does that gets you out of being your own worst enemy kind of thing. Oh, and, and well, you- maybe that's a nice way to look at it. I always have, of course, tortured myself and felt horribly guilty for getting him out of there because I think if I'd left him there, he might have been an Andre Debuse, you know, he, or however you say that writer's name, that he would have stuck to fiction and been a great, He's a great fiction writer. Yeah. Um, and so I worry. <laughs> I do. I mean, he said to me, should I move to California? And I was like, I cannot answer. Of course, I want you to come with me, but I can't answer that for yeah. you. Um, and so I don't know what part of himself he left behind when he left there. Um I probably should go right back to the shrink and talk about this. <laughs> you see, it's terrible. Um, I don't know the answer. You've been pretty open about what happened behind the scenes on The Sopranos, uh, about you being fired, about how oh. you got fired, how it all went down. I Has, tried to be, from my point of view. It was pretty candid. I read this, I finished your book on Saturday, the day of the book fair, and I was taken aback. I actually didn't know how to even ask these questions, but I'll kind of just nurse my way through them. Um, has there been any reconciliation? No. Is that something that you want? In a dream, I, I had a reconciliation, or, or at least a confrontation, a face-to-face meeting. Um, but I can't remember um, if I could forgive him. I don't. I think I. I don't. I don't know how he gets grudges for life. You know, he's he's he. Um, he, I feel like he had the same hatred for me that he had for his mother. I don't know what it is from his point of view. I mean, I probably just annoyed him. And I, and I do think sometimes, I try not to think about it too much <laughs> because you do have to move on. But um, I try to think of it from his point of view, and I know that I was really annoying. I was really unhappy there. Um, he Why? Dis- well, disingenuously invited us out to, you know, that meeting, that ridiculous sellout. I call it something with sellout Sunday. That was Mitch's phrase, actually, where he, he brought us out there. Matt must have been home with his family here in L.A. Um, he brought us out to Queens and to the office. And his wife was there, David's wife. He'd invited her for some reason. and Oh, because it was about continuing. Terry was there, Terry Winter. 
And David and me and Mitch, that was it. Did we have enough creative juice to go on after the fifth year? Terry, who was a lawyer, um, said, absolutely. You know, no question. I'm sitting there thinking, okay, if I say, no, I think, you know, I've had it, I'm sacrificing it. I really don't want to tell you how many millions of dollars. So it wasn't just David that was selling out. (laughs) Um, And I think on some level he must have known that, that really – I've always been a very respons- a fairly responsible employee, and I would deliver as best I could, and I still love the show. And I wait a minute. Let me let me just get back at take some of this back because part of the reason that I stayed with it so long, even though it was very unpleasant with David, was that I cared very much about the show. I wanted to stick up for my part of the show. I've been with it since the beginning, not the pilot, but I felt passionate about certain things. And I just felt passionate about what story, how stories should be told and, uh, and wanted to keep fighting from my point of view. Um, and so I wasn't a complete sellout. If it was going to go on, damn it, I was going to go on with it. But I also didn't want to sacrifice those millions of dollars, which I would have if I had said, you know, no, actually, I think the show is is spent. David would have, I would have been out the door right then, and I still had a it still had a season and a half to go or something. So, but there was an element. I don't know if I, I, I the, doubt it was, it was an element of gamesmanship, no, or well, was it was no, it more innocent but, than that? Not consciously, because he. he he could have just fi- – I don't know why he didn't fire me sooner, frankly. He said he talked to his wife about it, you know, couldn't sleep it from thinking about it. it. It troubled him so much. It angered him. He hated me, um, wanted to get rid of me. And it, it had been going on for a long time, um, you know, and it really was very bad for Mitch too. It sent him for the first and last time to the shrink. You wrote uh, in the book that it started to devolve in season two. This is me kind of like cheerleading here. And, and you can hate me too. No, no, you know, no, no, I, no, I don't. I, don't. I, I have been hated by like, the, no, no. The, the, you know, Paulie Walnuts, the guy that played Paulie Walnut, Tony Sirico, that whole thing about like, he's, he, I've been in the can and I've seen tough guys. Yeah. When I, when I saw Tony, when I saw that one over there pointing to David, I took a step back, you know? <laughs> I mean, that David- That's a great anecdote. Well, that, you know, um, Mitch insisted it was somebody else that said it, but I know it was Tony Sirico. <laughs> My thing is, and I'm speaking on behalf of fans here, you were a big part of one of the greatest things ever. Does that mitigate anything? What do you mean? I'm selfishly asking for life advice again because the listeners out there, and myself included, wish that we could be a part of something even fractionally as important. But the thing about that is the contradiction. I'm talking about the relationship. Like the, the relationship went... South. Oh, with David? We, yeah. That's what I'm asking. Like when you build something with somebody or another person or a team of collaborators, David, is that always irreconcilable if there's a falling out? No, nobody else had this but me. He he, he kept friends with everybody there. There was some other dynamic there. Yeah. He was friendly with everyone. It's not inevitable. I'm, I'm very friendly now with Josh Brand, okay. who was my boss, but yeah. never my friend. Now he's my friend, and I will never work for him because I, I want him to be my friend. You make that distinction very clearly. Yeah, I feel that that's a, a large part of it is that, 
you know, you and David were friends. Yeah, Mitch and- always says like he knew from the beginning that nobody those started would be standing at the end, meaning us, all of us, Frank, um, Frank Ranzuli. Ranzuli. I don't think David thinks of this as something that we did together. I don't think that he credits me with any of it, any of it. I think he thinks, and rightly so to some degree, um, that it's him. He's the only child, and it's him, and it's mine. I think that he saw in Terry and and uh, uh, Matt um, people that he didn't mind sharing it with for some reason. They they shared the same guy. What guy. was the difference? Um, I don't know because Mitch is a guy, but Mitch was never part of that guy guy thing. He never. Mitch, got you the- wrote in there that Mitch was allowed to stay. Oh yeah, you- David said he would keep Mitch. And it was like, it wasn't Mitch he was firing. In other words, he understood that Mitch would say no, but he wanted he wa- wanted Mitch, I guess, to know that it wasn't him he was firing. But um, Mitch got a message from David after, he, after we left. Uh, uh, we, he knew David's email, and uh, the, the email message said, you know who this is, or do you know who this is? Mitch never responded. Mitch is a tough guy. Um, he never responded. And Mitch's loyalty is to me, I guess. I guess it got to be a loyalty kind of mobby thing. Um, you see, this is the thing that that is troubling is that I, I haven't resolved any of this. You know, I never really – I try not to think about it. I try to move on with my life, but um, – I, I try not to do things that have David juice on them, and yet here I am talking about it because I do feel that I was part of this. I know that I did write a lot of that stuff. We met some people in a bar the other night going to the we were going to the ninety second street y to uh, hear Tom Boyle uh, read. He's a good friend of Mitch's yeah. and mine, uh, but mostly is Mitch's. T C Boyle for T C Boyle, yeah. yeah t- and and uh, we stopped in this restaurant on the way, and there was a couple sitting next to us at the bar. We had we were eating. And they found out that we wrote, you know, Mitch was talking to the guy, and they found out we wrote for The Sopranos, and he started quoting from the show. He's a doctor. So, oh, no, he's a financial guy. And he started quoting lines from the show, one of which was my line. You know, it was my best line that I ever wrote. Which Not was? my favorite. Which was, um, it was, there was something to do with the Hasidic Jews and Masada. And uh, the where are Ro- the Romans now? Yeah, where are the Romans oh. now? You're looking at them. You're looking at them. And that was like, that was me, you know, that was absolutely me. And that came out of my head. I remember saying it or writing it or whatever happened. You know, that was like a happy accident. It was a wonderful thing. It was wonderful. I, yeah, yeah, I was like, I wrote that. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> and my favorite line is, was belonged to, what was the name of the Russian girlfriend? Irina. My love, my new pony boots, Tony. Is that you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who, wh- wh- who could write that besides a girl? Right, you know? right. No, I, mean, I love my new pony boots, Tony. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we would sit around and laugh our yeah. heads off about in the story room because we would make each other – a lot of – I mean, we – David ran the story room – you know, all day, every day, 10 to 7, unless you were off writing or on the set. So we're in there, and you're talking, and you tell them everything you know about everything. I and mean, that was part of it, too, was that I probably had already told them everything because <laughs> I'd known him for so long. But got sick of me. But um, Were there any signs or tells of things to come during the Northern Exposure days? You mean the, a bad feeling? Of, like, the relationship devolving? You know, here's the thing. 
you have to be very careful around David. You have he has he's he has a, a strict code of behavior. Um and so you could say we were friends, but it was always with that. There was always like a way in which, as Tony Sirico said, I was taking a step back, watching myself. The enmity began the times when I wouldn't watch myself, and those were usually liquor-related. We would be out for dinner where we probably shouldn't be as an employee um, boss. Got it. Um, and I would have a drink, and I would say something that I knew if I thought about it, would bug him. So Mitch would always say, why did you say that if you knew it would bug him? Why indeed? I mean, I remember we were speaking at a you know WGA event once, and I, I told the story of who really thought of the idea of college um, when Tony strangles the uh, rat. And you could see the smoke coming out of David's ears. That was early on. And Mitch said, why did she do that? Why did you tell that story? And I said, because it's true. And that's kind of this, the trouble that I get in with Mitch about with, in the book. Mitch's point is, what kind of a grudge do you have against him that you would want to piss him off? Yeah. And the grudge was probably hating that I had a boss who told me what to do. I'm not real good at it as a wife either at all. I, I, it's not my favorite thing to have to watch myself. So there. Well, it's a very, <laughs> very open and honest. What's that and girl think over there? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we Anne and I we talked about that at lunch. Oh yeah, I have to. I have to worry about what you're going to think when I write something. What what part of being an artist is that? You know. So there's, you know, I guess David's not the only one who can be angry, um, and so I, I guess I uh, brought it all upon myself. Oh, well. <laughs> what are you going to do? When did the relationship sour in your estimation? What was the tipping point? Oh, well, it was early on <laughs> that first summer when I we were having dinner, that, that story about Elizabeth, Isabel Rossellini at the next table. I pissed him off by, by pursuing a line of questioning. And I'm having dinner with Barbara Hall You wanted tonight. in that, if, I'm, if I may take liberty with the paraphrasing, you wanted— to know from him that he chose you for merit and not because someone Somebody else, else wasn't was available. Busy, which was like... Which is a line from the show. I don't know if you remember this, but Ralphie, he wants yes. to know from Tony that I want to know that it was on merit yeah. and not because right. you... I can't remember who wrote that, but if it was David, it was me. And if it was me, it was me. Well, here's how Tony handled it when he asked. He didn't answer. And he looked at him and he said... Uh, you're going to make a lot more money. And he gets up, he finishes his drink, and he walks out. Yeah, I don't know who wrote that. That's interesting, but that's exactly what But I, when I read but that— that's exactly what happened. I saw a parallel in the show. Yeah. I mean, that is exactly what happened. And, and I, I don't know who wrote that. I mean, David got pissed off one day later on. I guess they were burying— uh, Who did they— Oh, Steve Buscemi. Who did he play? The uh, cousin, somebody. Uh, Tony Blundetto. Yeah, Tony. Tony Bl Uncle Al. Yeah. Oh, that's that was a huge falling out with David. Oh God, the, the fucking roosters or chickens or something out at that farm. But, uh, uh, but um, you know, Tony. I guess no, Christopher. 
I forget who he was digging the grave with. Somehow, and it's escaping me now, but for some reason, the bones could potentially lead back to Yeah, the, well, the murder. it was, it so was Blendetto. So, yeah. they, so they're doing this, and they're sweating, and they're you know shoveling, and it's hard work, and it's physical work. And they're talking about Tony up at that hill in his house, in his big house. And David even said something like, I know you're talking about me. Did you write that episode? I think we wrote that okay. because we were talking about him. That that feeling came from what, yeah. what we were feeling about David. That's the way it is. You know, what are you going to do? That's, yeah. We did feel that way. Yeah. Well, fuck him going out to dinner all the time with all these hot shots, you know? What about me? You know, David, <laughs> we had this, this is maitre d' at a restaurant we go to uh, near our house. And uh, this was, this was. I don't know what year it was. I don't think I put it in the book. Maybe I did. But the David came in with, who's that actor who carries his dog around as a comedian? Because now he's in the stratosphere. Baboom, you know. And he said to us once early on, I hope you guys don't resent um, that I'm taking all the credit. This is my shot, you know. And we were like, oh, it's okay. You know? <laughs> so he he did. He just... It was his time, you know, and he he did, you know, he he got Eric Clapton's guitar, he got the seat here, he was he was treated different, like a big deal, and we, you know, here we're shoveling. The maitre d comes over to me and Mitch. We're at the bar, and uh, oh, he's and he said, "You know what that guy just said?" And uh, I said to him when he came in, "Robin and Mitch are here." The actor said, "Oh, who's that?" And Dave is that just some of my writers, dismissively. Now the maitre d told us that he shouldn't have told us that. It was like a very troublemaking thing to do. Yeah, but it really pissed me off. So as we were leaving, we had to get our coats, and David called us over to the table, summoned us, and. Um, he said he was in a panic because he didn't know what wine to get. And Mitch is an expert on wine now, my Iowa boy. And uh, he really has a great palate. And uh, I think uh, I think I said the line back, something about uh, maybe Richard said. I was being introduced. I said, oh, we're just some of his writers. And the next day at work, David mentioned that mentioned the phrase that I had used. He knew that you had heard it. He said, you shouldn't channels. think, you shouldn't talk about yourself like, you shouldn't think about yourself like that. It was like getting, it was weird because, do you understand? He knew, yeah. he knew yeah. what had ha happened somehow or I, I had overheard that and he knew that I had, you know, he experienced me as passive aggressive and guess what? You know, I am. Well, I mean, so much of it is Gee, is do you baked think I'm in... still full of anger? I no. don't know. So much of it is <laughs> so much of it is baked into the show. That well, passive yeah, aggressiveness. Well, it totally and, is, and you. Um, your and guts... I can hear you when uh, hearing you describe these anecdotes is giving a lot of color to the characters that are on the screen. Well, that's what it us. is. That's yeah. how you come it's into. Life. The, that's how you create the story beats yeah, yeah. from these feelings that you have, sure. these anger, all of it has to be in play. Yeah. You have to be alive. Yeah. You have to be feeling feelings. You have to be able to say what they are. And there were a lot of feelings and some, and, and, and they didn't, they weren't always pretty. No. And uh, that's what you access. Sure. You have to be able to do that. 
Um, and I think probably <laughs> five years is a good time limit for to be on a show <laughs> before you're really going to get on somebody's nerves. I think it's probably I come down to maybe something as simple as that, that I'm not the most easy person maybe to have around and I got on his nerves. It's probably something as simple as that. And then to tack on to that, you happen to be a part of something that was stratospheric. But it doesn't feel like that at the time. It doesn't? It didn't? You were you know just so what? in the moment? You love you love the I love, love, love the private jet. I loved the uh getting dressed up. I loved mastering getting dressed up. Um I love Sarah Jessica Parker saying to me, Where what are you wearing? And saying, That's so smart of you to wear your your own clothes. And because I had one glamorous outfit that I was comfortable in. Yeah. I, you know, and at a certain point I did look right. So I had to learn that. I had to learn the skill of hair and makeup and dressing myself or borrowing jewelry or you know, all the limos and stuff. I love that stuff. I mean, you feel like you're part of something popular at least. Yeah. Part of, but the thing about feeling part of something monumental, I guess, wait a minute, am I really truthful? Because it, we started being compared to Balzac and stuff. That yeah. felt really good. That's No, I would be lying if I didn't say that felt really good. But it doesn't make any difference in your life. You know, David still had back trouble. I still, <laughs> you know, had whatever. Yeah, yeah. Know. A couple of technical things. You may not remember. Um, you, I think you might have written about this. First of all, what was the best episode you wrote? What episode are you the most proud of? Um, not the one I won the Emmy for. Um, Whitecaps. Oh. No, no. I love Whitecaps. Um, the one where Malfi gets raped. Oh, Employee of the Month. Yeah, Employee of the Month. Um, there was a conflict about that ending. Well, right? no, no. There wasn't a conflict. David wanted you – know, the story that David imagined was she got – raped and then he, he, Tony seeks revenge. So that was on the table. Yeah, but I but he, he you always do a rape episode but um I mean it's just a natural but uh with a woman character of course you have to get her raped. But um No, but I'm talking about the no, exact revenge. No, no, but the, I just said it would be a lot more interesting. And David said, "Yes, you're absolutely right." I mean, he, if an idea is good, he'll he'll like it, but he didn't like he didn't like that episode at all. He didn't like the the turgid kind of emotional uh, aspect of it. I would write these scenes. I wrote this one sex this scene with uh, Anna Belasciore and Tony in a, a zoo. Yeah, and he sticks his hand up her skirt, and she doesn't have any um, underwear on. And by the way, the actress didn't have any underwear, and it really freaked James out. But um, I mean, she, she was like seeing what would happen. Wow, and it freaked him out. But yeah. I think that's true. But anyway, um, I wrote. I wrote it, and Terry Winter read it, and he said it, when he read it, it made him hot, you know. David changed it to take the heat out. He didn't want to get into that kind of thing. He didn't want to – he didn't want feelings. He didn't want crying. He didn't want – he didn't want crying. There was no crying. There was laughter, but there was no crying that I remember. I mean, Blue Bloods, people are crying all – I love eliciting tears. That's, you know, like I love, I love laughter, but I also love – you know, the turgid shit. But he that was not his taste, that episode. And also, for my part, I really didn't like uh, the rape. I thought – and I didn't like the extent of her injuries because really I don't think it's necessary for rape to have that extent of injuries to be truly horrific. So I wasn't ha that happy with it either. But but you lose control of things. It's not perfect. The you choice, have regrets after. The choice to have her 
stare at him in the camera, the frame. Yeah. And he says, is there anything you want to tell me? Yeah, yeah. And it just shows her face and she says, no, cut to black. Yeah. That was a beautiful choice. Well, it had and to be it that. Is timeless. No, that's fine. No, that was fine. Yeah. And I wanted to do that. Um, You write that the strip club in the show was originally called Final Lap. What happened? Well, Tom's, oh, Tom, uh, what's his name? Frank Ranzulli named it the Final Lap. And uh, we found it didn't clear. There already was a final lap okay. strip club. So we had to think of another name. But David called up Frank and, and needed another name. And David and Frank came up with a bada bing, bada boom, you know, bada bing. And yeah. Frank came up with a lot of stuff. How did things change for you post-Sopranos? Bring us to the present. I was very upset and shattered uh, to be fired by David. And uh, it was like a, I, I never really got my heart broken until then. So that broke, it broke my heart. But yeah. It broke my, I don't think I cried, but I think I felt bad. <laughs> I think I felt bad. And whenever I would see David or be in a place he was, um, uh, I, I couldn't face it. You I would, describe it. And again, uh, your story reads like a movie. The book reads like a movie. Well, get somebody to film the damn well, thing. Let's make some ca- money. You know? Who do you cast as Robin Green? Oh, you know, somebody, you know, Josh had an idea for it. But uh, Zosia Mamet's company called up, and I thought, oh, she'd be great. You know, kind of, she, it's, just, it's, a, it's the sort of flaky me, um, and I'm stronger than that uh, at, ba- you know, at bottom. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, I have no idea. Uh, who's cast as Mitchell Burgess? Oh, well, if he were, you know, 50 years younger. Jeff it's going to Brid- be a young. It's Jeff be a- Bridges. Oh. Okay, Jeff Bridges. That's a good one. A uh, young Jeff Bridges. Yeah, a young Jeff Bridges, Nick Nolte. Okay. Jack Nicholson. Mm. <laughs> he he sends me that mean prick, you know. <laughs> I think he's so sexy, but, you know. Um, before I let you go, how do you feel about what's going on with the WTA and the ATA? Do you have any, any thoughts, reactions to that? I'm I, I'm I love my agent. He's a friend, um, but in fact, it's like Barbara Hall always says: it's not show friends, it's show business, and uh, that's a hard thing to hold because the people that you meet are so likable in this business. And you know, Ted Shervin and us have go back a long way. We socialize, so there's no way in hell I'm going to enjoy this process. Is but business- we have to fire him. Is the business going to fundamentally change or is yeah. it going to? I don't think it has to. The problem, as I see it in my small way, is that we are negotiating with people we hire to negotiate for us because they're such good negotiators. So Harold Hayes told me never get in a pissing match with a skunk. I don't know what that means, some Southern thing. Um, but that's what's going on. I mean, we're, we're just engaged in this hostile uh, standoff. Is it hostile? Well, you're firing people. Yeah. You're saying after all these 25 years, I think it's important for agents. You feel in a certain extent with an agent that you work for them. And it's not true. It, it shouldn't be true. It isn't true. They work I, for you. I got my job by myself, my first job through my connections. Yeah. And then Elliot Webb came with his hand out to shake my hand and his hand out. And um, the minute you make that deal, you have to. I think you do have to be careful that you don't surrender your independence to that person. 
and that you don't work for them. They make you feel, but they're good at making feel people feel less than. That's their job. And so that's what we're dealing with. I, 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 they have to give in. Uh, and maybe it will change the business. I think it's going to, because all deals that are in place now, they have to agent. They have to work for us. Um, I'm going to clarify that with my lawyer after I leave here, but I think I was told that was true. Um, but I think it's important, you know, you, you go to CAA and you see that building, you think, who paid for this? You know? What, what, is this necessary? I've always felt that before this. I just worry the whole thing's been so precipitous that I don't, it's, it's happened like without our, my even realizing it was happening. It happened so fast. You know, the deadline of, of what deal we had with the, with the, with the agents. Yeah. The book is The Only Girl, My Life and Times on the Masthead of Rolling Stone. Robin Green, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been like therapy, right? It's been therapy for me. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God.